You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Rose Sullivan and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent and I'm your host. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss digital transformation within the NHS. Uh, before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So I'll start us off. Um, my name's Rose. I work within the NHS team here at Evolution. I'm working specifically with several NHS ICSs, AHSNs and three government bodies across the UK. My goal is to help those organisations realise their true potential towards better patient care. And this is done through digital technology and innovation. So that's me. Uh, Francis, would you like to introduce yourself first, please? Yeah, so my name is Francis Masinde. I am the Digital First Programme Lead at Southwest London ICB, uh, working on the Digital First Programme uh, with a team of project managers uh, to deliver a number of work streams and outcomes uh, for the Digital First Programme for Southwest London. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Um, and Chris, can you go next, please? Sure. So I'm Chris Norcliffe. I'm a GP in Manchester, uh, and I'm also a uh, digital lead for the Greater Manchester Primary Care Provider Board. Um, I'm also working in Digital First. I'm the clinical lead for our Greater Manchester Digital First Programme. Um, I'm generally interested in change and I think digital is a, a hugely important part of that going forward and seeing uh, and sort of challenging our status quo and our norms and seeing what what can we do better because I think we can always always challenge ourselves to do that. Perfect that's fantastic and thanks for joining us Chris. Um, Steve would you like to go next please? Yeah sure I'm Steve Ashwell I'm a head of business analysis at NICE I'm part of the digital information and technology team so it's a step away from uh, front you know provider care so it's kind of a, an arm's length body um, I have a, a background uh, in libraries and, and library science, so I'm passionate about lifelong learning, uh, access to uh, evidence, managing evidence and processing it. I'm also passionate about business analysis and being a generalist and working with teams to help them describe and solve their business problems and listing and managing requirements. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thanks for that for everyone. Uh, it's great to have you with me today. Um, now that we are all introduced, let's move on to your questions relating to the topic, digital transformation within the NHS. As usual, uh, I'll work my way around the panel, asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. So we've got Francis coming in first. Uh, so his question is, is digital transformation in the NHS primary care a choice or necessity? And Francis, are you able to uh, go into some detail on, on what the thought behind that was? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rose. So, yes, um, you know, as you said, the topic is about digital transformation uh, in primary care. This is an area of personal interest and passion. Uh, one, because I believe in transformational change, um, you know, when it comes to the delivery of services in whichever industry sector, whether it's healthcare, whether it's other sectors, you know, uh, being able to manage change is an absolute imperative. And, uh, you know, with the changes um, that, for example, have happened uh, across the globe because of the pandemic, I think there's a new type of thinking and approach to how we do things, how we conduct business and how we deliver services within uh, within healthcare. So at the moment, when you look at, for example, uh, primary care across the NHS, there are a number of challenges that face us. 
one of them uh, being that there is uh, a real experience of inadequate access to urgent care uh, and, you know, and access to general practice uh, in general, you know, which is at a, a time low. So how, for example, we open up uh, digital as an enabler, as a capability, as a tool to enhance that access becomes absolutely critical in how we deliver primary care services. The other challenge is around, uh, for example, the prim primary care teams, uh, our healthcare professionals that work within primary care who are stretched beyond capacity um, with staff morale at record low. So doing things that make their job easier, you know, to, to deliver services becomes a, an absolute imperative. So we know that during uh, the pandemic, for example, primary care staff uh, went over and above their call of duty to deliver services and respond to the pandemic. Um, you know, being able to respond, uh, they had to adopt, adapt very, very quickly to new modes of working, new modes of delivering services, moving from, uh, you know, manual processes to digital, the use of online consultation, for, for example, use of online consultations became uh, sort of, you know, rolled out overnight, you know, to be able to, to meet that demand for patients and reduce the footprint uh, into practice. That in itself calls for a lot of transformation and the perceptions around what makes that transformation um, possible through the use of digital. And therefore, in primary care, the question is, when we talk about digital transformation, especially in, the, in our current environment, the current climate where I'm having, you're almost coming out of the pandemic, is that a choice or is it a necessity? I think the answer is almost obvious that the digital transformation and how we manage that in primary care becomes an imperative and therefore a necessity to how we deliver services and enhance digital access for patients, you know, to be able to utilize and access uh, services in primary care. On Digital First, for example, the program that I work on, it's about primary care innovation. It's about delivering digital transformation. So, you know, Aspect things like online consultations, being able to offer patients that access uh, to be able to contact their practice online, like any other business, whether it's banking, whether it's other uh, other businesses, you know, other sort of industries. That kind of online access becomes vital because they can then go online be able to submit their symptoms online. Uh, those symptoms get to uh, their GP practice, they triage and are able to offer them an outcome. So that is absolutely critical in how patients can then access their services, uh, reducing the footprint into uh, practices, but also giving them the flexibility that they can do that within the comfort of, of their home without necessarily having to, uh, you know, to, um, to drive distances to go and see uh, their GP practices. Things like online, you know, video consultations, for example, where a patient is able uh, to have a video consultation, they can take uh, a photo, they can take an image of a condition and submit online to the patient. That becomes an absolutely vital point. But also, what underpins this then, it's about change management and how we change the attitudes of our patients to know that actually they do not need uh, to have a face-to-face -face engagement with the practice. They can do things within the comfort of their home uh, using digital means, digital access to be able to access services in as effective 
uh, a manner as they would uh, in a face-to-face. -face. So digital transformation becomes an absolute necessity going forward and how you know, we can sort of enhance that digital access for patients, um, you know, to how they, they access their general practice services. Brilliant answer, Francis. Thank you so much for that. Um, Chris, I'll come to you next. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I think whether or not digital transformation is a choice or a necessity, I'd say it's an inevitability. Um, and I think that something we're often not great at in the NHS is is lining ourselves up with, with other sectors. And I think there's a Traditionally, we, we think of ourselves as different and special, and we are. You know, I think that is an important thing. The NHS is an absolute institution. But when you look at other sectors, so take, so there's a few of these sort of paradigms. So if you think about booking taxis, it used to be that you'd, the only way you'd do it, you'd hail a taxi. And then that progressed onto the fact you'd phone up and book your cab. And now you book it on Uber and you can see where it is on the way. And that that's just happens naturally. And that happens in like booking a holiday. So you used to look at the, you know, the classifieds in, in a newspaper and pick out and say, oh, well, that looks nice. We'll go there. And then it used to be a brochure and you would go to a travel agent. And, and now it's you go on an app and you book it just like that. Um, and there's loads of examples of that. And I suppose the challenge is why should accessing primary care be any different? Um, our whole experience of how we live life is has changed over the last year, five years, 10 years. And it's been a, it's an accelerating trend. And I think that it's an inevitability that, that the way people interact with services, be it healthcare services or any other services, is changing. And people are, are more adept to doing things online. And for some people, it can be um, a much better experience. Um, so I have, a, through COVID, I had a really interesting realisation that when um, there's lots of people who would do spend a lot of time pre-COVID in an online scenario, gaming, for example, and people might, and then certain people in society might say, oh, well, you know, they don't have real friends, they're online friends. And then suddenly we get into COVID and it's like everyone does everything online. And you realise that actually we just, COVID's kind of moved our perception on a bit. And there's some people that interacting online in that way just works so much better for. Um, and I think what we need to look at is, is is how we can leverage that change in society and change in people's behaviours to, to further primary care and not hinder it and probably let ourselves go a little bit and go go with the flow rather than fighting against it because the change will happen, people change and the world changes and we need to make sure that the way we deliver primary care um, is right up there. Brilliant, absolutely perfect answer. Um, and Steve, what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, so I, I think... Um... Uh, you, everyone's raised some good points, really. I, I think, it, you know, I think digital transformation probably has uh, different meanings for different people. Uh, you know, so there's a range and a spectrum there. Um, but I, I agree with um, what Chris has said there, that healthcare doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, we have um, people in society, you know, who have uh, rising expectations because of the services that are being delivered in other, in other um, domains like travel industry and so on. Um, you know, it's there's an always-on culture. Uh, I was reading something from um, uh, Contently, a, a website of, of, about sort of content development. You know, and it was kind of saying today's today's customer won't just browse your website. They, you know, they're going to check your app. They're going to interact with your digital signage and and see your brand across social media. You know, so digital products are now core components of businesses, uh, brands, markets, and, and customer value. You know, they're sort of it's, it's penetrated all of those things. Um, but in the NHS, you know, that human touch element of it is really important. You know, that personal 
personalized sort of um, approach. And, you know, that we don't want to lose that at the same time as, um, you know, at the same time as realizing the sort of benefits of, of digitization and working in, in, in a digital way. Uh, but there's definitely rising demand for primary care and the system is definitely struggling at the moment um we have to also consider the work-life balance of our professionals you know on the front line in primary care you know they they need to be cared for as well um so it's kind of you know it is um isn't just about um optimizing the services for uh the, the patient you know it's everyone needs to be considered um and i think there is uh definitely um a need for technological transformation to allow professionals time to perform their activities as efficiently as possible. Um, well, I think there's also, you know, a need there to share information with the patient and get allow the patient to become involved in their care. Also, sharing information between services is really vital, you know, between primary care and, and secondary care, um, primary care and, and other, um, you know, um, medicines teams and, uh, you know, hospice care and, and care in the community so on you know uh you know from personal experience uh last year you know i had um uh you know a community nursing team needed to you know they were in, with the patient you could see that the patient was incontinent but it was they couldn't order incontinence pads that was a, an incontinence care team you know so we had to sort of it was kind of like it was a uh, really um being passed between different teams you know and you think well why can't that information be shared you know make make life a lot easier fantastic uh, i feel like we we want to dive in here uh, so chris you've got your hands up what, what would you like to add to that so i just wanted to pick up on a really important point that steve made there about not losing the personal touch in in providing care and i think so francis and i both have the experience working in the digital first domain and I think one of the major pushbacks I often get when when doing that work is people perceive that we're asking for digital only primary care um, and corralling people into doing things a certain way. Um, and we had a, a workshop with our sort of place based leads a, a few months ago in Greater Manchester and someone made a really great challenge, said we shouldn't be calling it digital first primary care. We should call it digitally enabled primary care because it's, there's so many bits we can leverage in it in terms of how we use data and how we can bring that to the forefront to, to deliver better care for individuals and how we can create that capacity to, to deal with complexity and do what, so I'm a GP and what GPs do well is dealing with risk and complexity and where there isn't just a straight answer to a, a, a transaction. Um, digital first primary care is brilliant for transactional care and for some people myself, that's perfect. If I, usually I'm fortunate enough that if I need something from my GP, I want it a transaction. I want it to be done really quickly and I want it as soon as possible. Um, but there are lots of people that's not actually what they value. And I think what we can look at is how digital tools and digital transformation can create that capacity um, to provide that and do things slightly differently. Um, and I think it's, it's just one of those really important things that we're not as much as so going back to sort of um paradigms, guilty as charged. I love using Amazon as much as I might challenge some of their uh their, their tax behaviors but use it all the time I, I still find that actually going into the shop when you want to buy something specific has a real value so there's it's not it's not one size fits all and i think too long in the nhs we've, we've kind of tried to design things about a one size fits fits all if you look at general practice the 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 old-fashioned 10 minute appointment um structure 
was is built around the fact that someone might take two minutes and someone might take 15 minutes and it'll all average out in the end but what, that's not a way to design a system is it and we need to have that flexibility and and the uh, and use digital to do things more intelligently so we give the right things for the right people at the right time every time and and continue that going and it's not as these it's not just about the, the delivery of, of of you know online consultations there's all the things that go into providing great care that go behind that and and how we can leverage di digital tools to make that work better fantastic thanks for adding that um and francis you wanted to add to steve's answer too yeah thank you thank you rose and uh, thank you chris and uh, and steve for for your input into that uh, i absolutely do agree with uh, what chris has just said there in terms of the uh, the transactionness and that you know that perception of um you know having uh uh, a service that's needed and and accessing that service uh, in a very timely efficient manner um in a way that sort of uh, assumes that that service is necessarily available to all uh, it's as as chris said the, the one size fits all but that's not quite the case you know when it comes to um, you know to the availability even of digital services in their efficiency and greatness, um, there are still certain aspects of the population that are not addressed. And this is where we come to the point of inequalities that, for example, there will be sections, cohorts of our population that cannot access uh, these digital services. And therefore, you know, you find that if we do not embed into our thinking, into our design processes, the point about inequalities cohorts of, of the population that cannot access these services, then these people very easily get forgotten. A case in point, um, I was at a, a conference uh, in a couple of weeks ago where, uh, you know, a knowledge expert on inequalities actually pointed out that during the pandemic, there were people who had no access to the internet, no access to mobile technologies, and yet they were all locked down at home on their own and not able to access their uh, any of the of the services and they put a question to us that can you just put yourself in a position of these people just to feel and understand what they might have been going through uh, you know that the fact that they were totally closed off from the outside world what did that mean for them so when we design digital services digital transformation we need to have those cohorts of the population in mind so that they can be part of that process and perhaps think of alternative ways of the, how they can consume the same services that are accessed digitally. Great, thank you. Steve, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, just great point really and I, I think it's, you know, one of the things is about putting the user at the centre of your your design really, making sure that, you know, you understand the, the user's needs and, um, you know, it's not a one size fits all. So it's about getting, you know, understanding each of each of those different um, users and uh, and groups and um, building services and designing inclusion at the heart of your service. You know, at the beginning of, of, of it, I think. Um, yeah, I was kind of like in, in a in a pharmacy recently, and there was there was a patient getting trying to get a repeat prescription, and uh, you know they were, they left it late. They were wanted to go on holiday, and they needed more medicine than they they, they would normally get. Um, but you know they had to go to the GP. They were they were kind of rebuffed at the uh, in the pharmacy and they had to go back to the GP you know why can't that form be online you know those those kind of things I think uh, crop up every day for people and uh, you know that's that's uh, that's about putting people at the center I think. Brilliant um, 
Did you want to add to that, Chris? Uh, yeah, sorry, this is a really interesting conversation. So um, I think the inequalities piece is, is huge. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a massive theme in the NHS at the moment. Um, and I think when we're looking at designing digital services and digital tools, I think that there is there's one side, which is making sure that we accommodate for those that can't use it, but also facilitating ways for people to be able to use it that don't currently use it. And I don't think that we really understand that well. And then what it what are some of the barriers? So a really good example I had was right at the start of COVID, uh, I was working for um, a provider that also ran a, an inclusion health service. So um, specifically for the uh, people experiencing homelessness um, and recognising that sudden switch to uh, a sort of digital first triage approach and uh, that, that nearly everywhere you know, took on board really very quickly. We had to find a way to at least allow people to have some access. So we went round to um, about 10 different um, homeless hostels uh, and support organisations in, this was in Salford, and provided smartphones with um, data on it and, you know, contracted smartphones that we we had for in the company um, and made sure, and I went round to a variety of them, we wrote a, a quick SOP for how to make sure that AccuRx worked. And that was the tool that was particularly helpful, you know, at, at the forefront of having video consults. Um, and I thought this was absolutely brilliant. I was really proud of myself. So like, this is a great thing. We're making sure that there's access. The, the usage of those phones was really minimal. We had a few, but I think what you understand is it's, it's not just about tools. It's about behaviours and understanding the why behind things. Um, and I think, you know, and, and that's that's really been a helpful process for me in terms of thinking about how we do things in in digital first and digital transformation because you make a lot of assumptions so you make an assumption that if you send a text message to someone they're going to be able to read it but they get so that means that a that they can actually read in terms of they can see it that they understand the language that they're literate and these are assumptions that we make and it's not an absolute and you need to start from a um a, a place of complete understanding and and to think that actually there will be people that that doesn't work for and it's very difficult for those people to then come forward and say hey i can't i can't use this tool um but there are ways around that so we send at the moment most of the communications that you send out in in, in sort of digital first technologies or or, or anything interacting through the practice of their patients are nearly always in English. There are tools out there that can look at doing that. So there's, uh, I'm fascinated at the moment about the impact of uh, robot robot process automation in, in healthcare. And there's some great tools out there which you can put into, which will translate into auto translate things into the, the language which is specified in someone's record, coming back to having the data there recorded. And we need to start testing those things and getting the data and proving that they work. And that's just one example with with language, but um, we've got to be innovative and not just assume that people, everyone can receive the information the same way. Brilliant. Um, and was that your main thoughts around your question? How can digital transformation support addressing healthcare inequalities? Well, I, th I think we've kind of sort of nicely segued into that topic. We absolutely have, yeah. Um, which is, and so when I thought about asking that question, it's because that question is ubiquitous in, in healthcare at the moment, because I think it's at the same time it's it it's a terrible shame that we're in a situation where we have to address healthcare inequalities but isn't it a good thing that we're actually doing it um, and it's become such a potent topic that in the future i hope it becomes less and less of an issue because things are designed at source to take into account these things i mean i think 
in terms of healthcare inequalities, there's all sorts of things that digital um, transformation can support. I think the more data we have, the more we collect data and doing things digitally is much easier to collect that data, allows you to have a really um, informed approach to how you address inequalities rather than making assumptions. Um, you have to know what you're dealing with to be able to deal with it appropriately. Um, and we've already mentioned about the the one size fits all not being not being a great model because some people need things in a different way and we need to be able to create flexibility and dynamism in our uh, services to be able to to deliver that for everyone. And Steve, did you want to add anything to that at all? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I was thinking, you know, I suppose from my point of view, it's kind of internal efficiencies can benefit everyone. You know, making making improvements on on the. Uh, in process optimization and so on but i suppose um it was interesting i mean there's there's a um nhs digital and the good things foundation did a study um and they about uh, tackling digital tackling the digital divide and they said that digital inclusion was the key you know was a key key to that and they they had like 23 pathfinder projects and uh, had great findings from from the, all of those projects really um so it was about sort of making services accessible via the internet um Opening up information to the patient about their condition, making making the systems more accessible. So looking at things like web browser accessibility. Um, I was thinking about you know how devices that people can wear or take with them uh, allow them to share information more easily with the healthcare provider, um, and you know remind them to take their medicine uh, or to track what they're taking, what the side effects were, and, and, and share that information with their with their professional. Um, but also I was thinking about, you know, how about the, 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 the NHS app and, and the COVID app as well and about how these these things do need rigorous testing. You know, they do need to have meet a certain quality threshold, do need to be usable and useful. Um, so, that, you know, there are sort of standards and, um, you know, ways that they can be evaluated uh, and, and, and more work is, is, you know, needs to be done in that area, in that field, I think. Um, and um, I was thinking about access to people who are housebound or difficult to reach, you know, um, that Chris mentioned there. Uh, you know, I saw, uh, saw something on the news, I think it was today, I was a headline about drone deliveries of chemotherapy, you know, but my son was just like really dismissive of, of that thing, you know, that's ridiculous, you know. But, you know, we have to think big and, uh, you know, for, for, for transformation and we have to sort of think outside the box, I think. Um, and you know, Chris mentioned that robot pro process automation, you know, and, and um, translation, which I think is a fantastic use case for that. Um, uh, but also, you know, the demographics of people where there's got dangers of missing people who who don't have devices. You know, my own parents, for example, uh, only my mum has got an old phone. You know, and um, it's one of those that it's not a smartphone. You know, it's kind of it's an it's you can only text to it, um, and she never takes calls on it, but you know it's, it's possible but um so there are also people who are reluctant to access health care you know because of fear you know there's a, there are groups in the community who are f fearful of, of contacting their their healthcare provider for, for one reason or another you know and it could be stigma or it could be fear or whatever it happens to be um there, there are there is that and uh, we need to be so sensitive to that um and i i think there are some great schemes and initiatives there's a, a social prescribing uh, initiative as uh, that i've seen where um, you know uh, the GP can refer somebody to the social prescribing, uh, where they get coached on uh, using digital apps and, and websites and uh, taken through the system, you know, and that's that's a brilliant initiative, you know. The, that means they can access education, they can access information about their condition, they can go to the you know get housing um, and. Uh, 
and reach others in the community who've got similar positions, so similar situations and, and circumstances. So you're breaking down those isolation and that loneliness as well um, through those kind of schemes and initiatives. There was, uh, my, my parents use their friends and the family a lot. Um, and, you know, they sit with with my parents and, and uh, use Facebook, uh, show showing pictures or accessing services, you know, through, through that as a means to to access healthcare. And, um, you know, it's it's about changing the culture, I think, and making that acceptable and, and not, you know, not seeing it as something that's a problem or something that we need to sort of, um, you, you know, attach any stigma to. It's kind of a, that should be the norm, really. Um, and um, you know, uh, I also saw something about the use of um, a Facebook group for um, uh, letting um, women in the area know about a breast screening clinic, you know, a mobile breast screening clinic um, just down the road. So it's kind of like it, it should be commonplace. You know, it shouldn't need to sort of talk about these things as unusual <laughs> uh, schemes and initiatives. You know, it should be the norm. Really. Uh, and Francis, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rose. And, you know, just to add on to what uh, Steve and Chris have said, um, both in terms of the services that are available uh, through which, you know, they, we, or which could be vehicles for addressing inequalities as, uh, uh, you know, as Steve just mentions, there are things like social prescribing services where, for example, people in need of, um, you know, sort of day-to-day -day life uh, services, you know, can be signposted to the most appropriate services within their locality. Um, you know, so they, they, they can access them. Um, and in most cases, you know, there will be people with various needs, but obviously because they, they are not aware what's available within their environment, uh, they remain held back. But if we, can, if we have ways of signposting them to these services, then they become aware, they are educated, and, uh, and then, you know, they, they know that there are those services that they can access, absolutely. But then the point that I really wanted to touch on is <clears throat> on the ubiquity, uh, the point on ubiquity uh, and, and approach and the perception, you know, around uh, the point of uh, inequalities. I'm not sure that, you know, the, it, it, it really is a, um, we are universally at that level where everybody has that same sort of perception. I think there still remain variation both in terms of uh, commissioners you know who who commission services but also the actual healthcare providers in a way that it calls for a new way of thinking in terms of uh, designing uh, both processes and systems um, you know that place the issue of inequalities at the heart whether it's you know so that um, the, you know, the issue of inequalities can be reflected in the very, in the core design principles of systems, processes that underpin healthcare provisioning. But also the, the other point is around, you know, the, the actual standards, for example, uh, the industry-based standards that approve and sort of stamp, rubber stamp things as fit for purpose, that the issue of inequalities need, needs to be reflected therein so that as these services get commissioned, get signed off, uh, that they are fit for purpose universally, both, you know, uh, addressing the, the issue around, um, you know, uh, inequalities. One of the, the, there was a very interesting model uh, that, for example, was, uh, was uh, mentioned, I think, uh, a couple of years ago, where, for, where, for example, uh, people in the community uh, access certain services 
um, with you know certain day-to-day -day services. For example, a barber, a barber shop. Many people, most men, would go visit uh, a barber shop. But if, for example, there was a a sort of healthcare workshop organized to bring about awareness of cancer or prostate cancer, or whatever you know, other forms of cancer, not many people would attend. But they found a way of reaching out to such people by actually visiting barber shops to go and speak to cohorts of citizens who attend these uh, these areas and talk to them about the dangers and you know of, of of prostate cancer and how and what they can do one to identify that they might be uh, susceptible to the condition and how they can deal with it if if it was ever discovered so the new ways of thinking and designing uh, you know aspects of accessing uh, you know of how people with inequalities can access uh, services in, in such a way Yes, the point, um, you know, is that, yes, in terms of the ubiquitous reception uh, or perception, it's there, but it still needs quite uh, a long way to go. It requires quite a long way to go uh, so that we, we get everybody to that same position where um, the issue of inequalities can be placed at the heart of, um, you know, of uh, process and services. Lovely. Does anyone have anything to add before we move on to the next question? No, nope. brilliant. Um, okay, so we've got your uh, your question next, Steve. Um, so we great question. How important is it to empower staff during digital transformation? So, Steve, are you able to delve into this one for us? Yeah, I was um, I was thinking about um, you know this uh, subject, and uh, I was thinking of what what would be an appropriate question um, to ask, and. Uh, this is a subject that fascinates me, I think. Um, so digital transformation, I, I feel, isn't something, if it's going to be successful, then it's got to feel like it's not something that's been done to you. Um, it's uh, It needs to be owned by you. And you you know you can't you can't really be passive as part of that process uh but empowering people i think from a, from an organization or a business point of view it it requires a a cultural shift um uh, certainly in my experience and i think that that part of that is about admitting that we can't keep doing everything uh the way we've been doing it uh, the enterprise needs to prioritize what it can do as part of its core business function but they then has to release uh, capability for to enable that transformation to happen. Um, and you know, for my my organisation at the moment, that that encompasses um, both thinking and looking at content in new ways, uh, looking at technology in new ways, me methods and processes, and organisational design. You know, it kind of encompasses all of those all of those kind of um, facets. Um, I'm also interested because I'm I work as part of an agile uh, delivery team. You know, I'm interested in being agile, um, working in 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 new ways, in ways that the uh, private sector have worked for uh, you know a, a long time now. But um, I also seen the value of having diverse, multidisciplinary teams working through problems, um, and you know the value of actually trying stuff out as a as a team as a multidisciplinary team building a you know having a model office where you can you've got the space to experiment with things um having uh ideation sessions process re-engineering workshops whatever you want to call them um you know having those kind of initiatives but also you know being being uh, you know mixing that with with program management is is possible you know there are you know you can have kpis you can have all the project management as well i think it's a 
it's been a, a uh, an imperfect balance in the past, you know. But I think I think I think it's still a challenge. Uh, but it's it's about you know I've seen it pers- from personal experience with the NHSR community and uh, you know um, innovators coding with um, the R programming language to build useful useful programs and apps that uh, in the data analytics field, for example. And uh, you know an example that I've been involved with is processing. You know, health outcomes data to combine studies and test the quality of the evidence. But there are other use cases. Machine learning and, and AI, you know, are coming through. Um, and um, I, I suppose those those are just a couple of um, uh, recent examples in my own experience. But I think also change requires champions. And it means that, you know, you need networks of people who can engage with people on the ground, uh, who can understand the current frustration and explain what's coming down the line so not necessarily here now but it's coming uh, and um, and then introducing that new technology and and, and showing people how it can help them uh, making it less less of a scary thing you know it's kind of it's not it's not something to be scared of and point out the benefits you know so that that transformation is very important that 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 um, that um, change network is very important also with um, you know the government sort of policy paper on there was a transforming for digital future policy paper, which had a like 2022 to 25 roadmap in it. And it was talking about things like alignment to the DDAT competency framework and, and upskilling people and, and developing digital roadmaps and um, reflecting the diversity of the population in the DDAT workforce. Uh, you know, all of these things are, uh, are important and, and um, stepping stones, I think. Um, and it was also talking against um, action you know action against systemic barriers to digital transformation whether they be financial processes you know having to de- develop large business cases and track impacts and, and all of that you know so making it a bit easier to introduce innovation um, um not at the expense of um due diligence but you know trying to sort of make the, the barriers a bit um easier to overcome um, but also I was interested, you know, this is kind of like meeting a definition of good for product centric organizational structures and agile ways of working. And I think that's uh, something from my experience that is um, is a challenge still, I think, um, introducing that way of working. Uh, I was also interested in the sort of um, the Nuffield Trust report on on developing a learning health system, uh, which I, I think is, um, you know, it's kind of like talked about increasing the value of innovation in, in clinical roles, you know, having um, clinical roles, uh, valuing the innovation that they they can bring in, in terms of technology. Um, understanding the importance of leadership uh, also, you know, in um, uh, digital roles, uh, analytical roles and developing the ana- that capability within organisations and career progression for, for those sort of digital leaders, which I think is really important. Um, and also, uh, you know, from, from my point of view, you know, taking a, a strategic approach to outcomes, data collection and patient reported outcomes, you know, as appropriate in, in various apps and so on. Um, but I think also it, they were talking about um, being transparent and reducing duplication of information and, and sharing training opportunities as well. So I think all of those are, are key things. Um, and the last thing I want to say is, is about, um, you know, staff developing the skills in order to prepare for the time that when when the implementation and the adoption data does come back into NICE, you know, as an organisation. So I, I think there are, you know, what we produce is guidance and um it, I think there will come a time when we, we're able to sort of harness 
um, that data that's out there about implementation uh, of, of that uh, guidance. And uh, we, we can then start to ask questions about how well is our guidance being used? Uh, is it easy to follow? Can the information that's being updated be easily identified? Is it clear what to do? And can it be interrogated by service commissioners as well, who, who need to know what to comply with if they're building new services like a cancer service or something like that? You know, so I see that data coming back in into NICE and, and you know, developing those um, analytical skills using coding and, and using techniques like um, R. Um, and, and the sort of benefits that that can bring to to uh, build, you know, kind of uh, potentially dashboards to, to show, you know, because, um, we you know, we've got things like the, the innovation scorecard, which shows us how the prescribing data for certain drugs that that, um, that NICE um, approves. So it's kind of like seeing that come back in and seeing that sort of learning um, go around the circle, if you like. Brilliant. Thank you, Steve. Um, so I'll move on to Chris. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on that. What What, what are you thinking? Oh, well, this is something that, so I'm so interested in how we set up our organisations to, to achieve the most. And I think empowering staff is huge. I think it's also empowering patients to be part of that change process as well. And I think Francis touched on that before about co-production. And co-production can be a bit of a buzzword in the NHS, but I think it takes real commitment to do it well and do it properly. Um, I think that, in my opinion, I think there's loads of evidence that that kind of top-down leadership isn't always that successful. And actually getting the most out of the sort of diversity of thought you have in an organisation in order to enact change is, is, is a brilliant resource. I think there's a Matthew Side wrote about it in, I think it might have been his book, Black Box Thinking, or that if you've got a, if you've got a, um, got a board of people you want, you're better off having 10 completely different people than 10 of the same because you get 10 times as much brain power as doing it than you would the 10, you know, 10 of the same. And I think that's why we need to empower our staff to be part of the, the change process. In the NHS, in my experience, most people come to work because they want to do make positive change and they want to, you know, have impact. And we really need to harness that and support that because isn't that an amazing thing that people come come to work with purpose? Um, and I don't think we acknowledge how lucky we are in the NHS to have that as a foundation, but we need to support people and 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 bring them that joy in work and see. And part of that joy can be seeing your own actions have meaningful effect. So I think the um, there's such a wealth of uh, resource in people that we have working in the NHS to support digital transformation and bring the insights that they have from from life. Because, you know, we're all patients at the end of the day or, or we will be at some point and we need to understand people and not assume that we know best. And I think it's a real thing in terms of being leaders in the NHS of of uh, relinquishing that um, ownership of problems and sharing it and, and creating a collaborative way to address problems. And um, th there's there's tons of evidence of, you know, examples of where that's done really well and where um so uh, an example would be uh, Toyota. Toyota, they have their um, uh, the, the Toyota change. I think it's called Toyota, you know, improvement uh, methodologies. And there's loads of quality improvement methodologies that stem from that. But in that process, someone working on a production line will be asked at a regular time, what do you think we could do to improve this? Because they are there touching the bits of the machine that they're building and they are listened to and it's fed in and they have formal ways of 
reinvesting that knowledge so that the person who's doing it actually has real impact into the wider organisation. And so I am whole hog invested in seeing that in the NHS. I think that we've got so much untapped resource that we could we could draw out and gain so much benefit from. I mean, we'll, I can't remember which is what the fifth largest employer in the world or something, after like the, the Red Army and you know, or or whatever. They, you know, we got that many people and there's that many brilliant people. We should be really you know finding the diamonds and, and bringing out the the benefit and, that everyone brings to that. Perfect. Uh, Francis, what are your thoughts on that or Steve's question and Steve's question? <coughs> yeah, thank you, thank you, Rose. Yeah, no, it's an absolutely vital question, um, you know, about the importance of empowering staff uh, during digital transformation, where most of the, the focus uh, becomes uh, becomes on, on technology, on putting in systems and processes, uh, and often we forget the people behind uh, these technologies that we put in, and, um, you know, uh, the, the, that in itself, you know, becomes an impediment even to the success of the of any sort of systems of uh, technologies that we put in. So, uh, staff is absolutely vital in any kind of transformational change. That it is one of the core pillars of any sort of successful implementation. I often, in my approach, when I deliver change or programs of change. I use what is called the 7S McKinsey model that looks at, uh, you know, the, the scope of what, what's being delivered, you know, the actual deliverables. But then within that, underpinning all that, uh, what needs to be looked at holistically, uh, what they call the 7Ss, one of them being the strategy, that you are doing something that aligns with the organizational strategy, you know, um, uh, so that it's not something that's just being done in a vacuum. There's some kind of push, some kind of mandate that's coming from reflecting the organizational um, sort of mission and, uh, you know, and, uh, and vision, as it were, so the strategy. And then the second element is the organizational structure that we are implementing digital transformation but that within that, it has to reflect the organizational structure. So within the NHS, of course, within primary care, we now have uh, primary care uh, networks, so PCNs that work with the practices, so that whatever we do has to underpin that kind of structure. And anything that sort of falls of that, you know, sort of uh, it, it disconnects and, and sort of uh, diverges from the way uh, services are delivered, especially where the push is to get practices to work in PCNs, in primary care networks for purposes of collaboration, but also delivering services at scale to benefit the patient and improving um, access and digital access, therefore. And then systems, you know, so that's the digital innovation element of it. And then there's what they call shared values. So within that, you know, you are implementing change, but in an organization that shares certain core values. So within the NHS, we are passionate about the values that we represent so that whatever we implement has to reflect exactly that. And then skill, uh, style and staff, you know, so that each of the seven S's that I've mentioned, they have to be in absolute fine balance that you cannot provide or place a single emphasis on one of them while neglecting the others, because otherwise everything else falls apart. So, 
you know, staff is absolutely vital in terms of implementing successful digital transformation because at the end of it, they are the people that use this technology. And once you have happy staff, then you have happy patients because then all that then gets reflected in how uh, patients are treated and, you know, and, you know, uh, and how they access services are absolutely vital. Perfect. Are there any final thoughts uh, on any of the questions that we've we've asked today? Just a thanks to my fellow um, contributors, really. It was a really interesting conversation. I did, did a, learn a lot from that. Thank you. Uh, I'd echo that. I think it's, you know, I think we could probably go on for hours, uh, you know, going on in all different directions here. But uh it, it's great to be part of a conversation with such enthusiasm about um the positive direction we can see the nhs going in with with digital transformation yeah absolutely echo the same and uh, thank you to my panelist members uh, for the wonderful contribution it's it's been an amazing uh, session you know just to be here with you thank you that's brilliant uh, and that takes us to the end of the podcast and i just want to take this opportunity to thank you all again for providing your insights into the topics uh, i've personally learned a lot today and i'm sure everyone listening will feel the same as well so thank you very much thank you